Well, as I said, a very warm welcome. I hope you're doing well. My name is Tim Horman. I'm the senior minister here at One for those who don't know me. And it's great to be with you as we jump into our re return to this Jesus and culture series that we started last year. We did parts one and two. So this is part three today. Now, just a heads up, we don't often do kind of topical sermons here at One. Most of the time, we just like to look at Scripture, unpack Scripture, and we'll be doing a bit of that this morning, of course. We almost must do that as part of bringing the message when we gather to worship is to turn our attention to the Word of God. Um, but as I explained last year, I felt that there were a number of things that are going on around us culturally, which I think are important for us to be aware of and to unpack, analyze, critique, and just respond to in terms of how we follow Jesus. So that's what we'll really be doing this morning. So I wanna be clear that I'm not doing this series because I am trying to recruit you to some kind of culture war. But also, neither is this really intended to come across as some kind of ax to grind against the world. Right? When it comes to the world around us, I very much believe we should take the approach that Paul recommends in 1 Corinthians 5, and it's on the screen, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, sorry, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So first of all, Paul is clear that when it comes to the world, why on earth would we be expecting people who don't follow Jesus to live up to the standards of Christ, right? We're not here to judge the world. As Jesus himself said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it, all right? So yes, we engage the world with open hearts and open arms and without judgment, and we respond to people with love and mercy just as Jesus did. But when it comes to the church, we must be more discerning. Clearly, Paul isn't speaking here about Christians who are sincerely trying to follow the way of Jesus, but who stumble or struggle along the way, right? That would be all of us. None of us would be welcome in church if that was the case, right? But he's talking here about people who claim to be Christians, but actually have no interest really in changing their behavior in order to submit themselves to the way of Jesus. They want to be a Christian, or at least they want the title, but they also want to carry on being sexually immoral. Like, they want to be a Christian and an idolater. You know, they're at the communion table on Sunday morning, but on Saturday night, in the ancient world at least anyway, they're down at the Temple of Dionysus worshipping there. Or a swindler, someone who is in the church actively working to cheat people, to defraud people of their money, right? And so the issue is that they're unrepentant about it, they don't wanna change. And so Paul says you shouldn't accommodate your churches to them, ask them to leave. So this isn't about someone who's trying their best and failing sometimes, 
This is corruption in the house of God. And the leaders of Corinth don't seem to have the backbone to address the issues. And as a result, the whole church is suffering because of it. And if you read the rest of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, you'll see that there are many various issues he's dealing with, not just these. So that's what Paul is talking about here. So this morning, I will be speaking about things happening in our culture that I do find concerning, troubling, but at the same time, my concern is not how we change culture. Uh, it's more about whether we, as the church, as the body of Christ, are clear in our minds about what we mean when we talk about the gospel. Are you with me? And what it means for us to follow Jesus and commit our way to a life of discipleship. Um, or have we allowed our understanding of the gospel to be subverted and distorted by the very powerful cultural narratives that surround us? We've talked about this before, especially during our Revelation series. The world is not neutral, you know that. The world is not neutral. It is a domain of the demonic principalities and powers, and they are trying to disciple you, to shape you in their own image. And that's happening every single day that you live and breathe. Do you recognize their influence over your life? That's what we're digging into in this series, so that we can have discernment, understanding, and respond with faithfulness. That's my concern. I also strongly believe that the best way for the church to change the world is not to go to war against the culture, but for us to actually get on with being the faithful community of Christ be the body of Christ and to continue, even if there's opposition against it, to put our confidence in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even if everything around us is pushing us to do otherwise, even if it's costly or even if it's just inconvenient. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. As Jody was praying for our children earlier, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is telling us this world is not neutral. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, but when, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Now he's not saying, I'm recruiting you to the culture war. He's saying, all I need you to do is put on the armor of God and stand your ground. And God has equipped us with everything we need to do this. So we're not here to fight, just stand in faithfulness, in trust, in humility, we were talking about yesterday. Do not be moved. And what is this armor of God? It's a way of describing the gospel and your identity now as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God. Think about it. What are the various pieces of armor? Salvation, peace, the Holy Spirit, righteousness, truth, faith. These are the weapons of our warfare. And a person who is dressed with Christ is someone who knows Christ and has submitted their life to him. What happens if we forget this? Next slide, Jesus is pretty clear. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If we lose our distinctiveness and we compromise the gospel so that our lives can be a little bit easier in this world, then we have lost our ability to say anything transformative to our culture because we have nothing of interest to say. Because we're not actually following Jesus. All we've done is baptized 
the culture. And often that happens in churches. Churches that start compromising the gospel are just kind of baptizing a version of the culture and trying to make it sound a little bit more spiritual. But we're not here to judge the world. We are here to judge the church. And I mean that in terms of ensuring that we remain faithful to Jesus and the good news of the gospel as it has been revealed to us in the scriptures. With that in mind, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the good news that we celebrate here this morning. We thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We thank you that there is not one square inch over this world that you have not declared that is mine. And even though the enemy is a deceiver and is trying to get us to believe something otherwise, we trust, Lord, that you are the head of your church, that you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Help us as your people, as men and women of faith, to follow you and to trust you. Lord, help us to stand our ground, to put on the full armor of God, especially as we consider the things that are going on around us. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would keep our eyes on you, for you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And with you in view, help us to run this race with diligence that has been marked out for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, given that it's been quite some time that we finished part two of this series, I'm not gonna do a full recap, that would take far too long. Those talks are online if you want to listen to them, but I am just gonna quickly remind us all of where we concluded last time, and then we'll dig into one particular element that we explored a bit last time, which I think is quite important, um, and that is how we understand the self, how we understand the sources and the meaning of our identities in this current cultural moment. Because I really think that's one of the main issues. Uh, so next week, however, just to give a little bit of a teaser, I am going to look at something that is sometimes called postmodernism. Who has heard that term before? One person, awesome. Um, thank you for that, I'll pay you later. Um, we're gonna look at postmodernism and how that has morphed into various social justice movements that have a lot of cultural power right now. Um, or is more commonly referred to as being woke. So we're gonna explore wokeness. Uh, is it really that bad? What do we need to learn from it? What should we reject? And how the Christian faith actually helps to preserve the kind of freedom that protects things like freedom of speech and expression and democracy and tolerance for difference, without which our culture is morphing into a kind of authoritarian moralism. Uh, but that's for next week, although I will talk a little bit about that at the end of this morning. So where are we? We finished up looking at the society that emerged in the West after World War II and the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, which I argued is actually still going on. It hasn't really ended. And the massive changes that that has brought to our culture, the culture we now live in, which is now both post-Christian and thoroughly secular. What is secular? What is secularism? What's a secular culture? The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor defines secularism as the attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. As Friedrich Nietzsche predicted 150 years earlier, God is dead and we have killed him and now having been set free from the shackles of religion, we must now face the abyss 
of meaninglessness, of a meaningless world and find the courage, he said, the will to power to remake the world in our own image. And that's kind of what's going on with secularism, a remaking of the world, not in the image of God or as in the sense of as a reflection of our creator, but in our own image. And since we all need meaning to live, if there is no God, no divine external authority from which you draw meaning, then all that, uh, th sorry, then all the social, so-called Christian virtues that have underpinned our society for the last 1500 years are now gone, right? Or rapidly disappearing. So that's all that's left to you then is to look inside yourself and find meaning on the basis of what you feel is your true inner authentic identity. This is a vision of life and meaning that Taylor goes on to call the age of authenticity. Next slide. This age of authenticity is one where people are called upon to be true to themselves and to seek their own fulfillment or own self-fulfillment. What this consists of, each must determine for him or herself. No one else can or should try to dictate its content we each have our own way of realizing our humanity without reference to a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Other people have given this situation different names, such as the therapeutic self, or perhaps more generally just secular humanism. Uh, and the mantra of this post Christian secular age of authenticity is that you create yourself, next slide, out of yourself on the basis of yourself. Why? Because there is no other source of meaning that's available to you other than what you feel is right, what you feel is true on the inside. But as we explored last time, this isn't ultimately sustainable or even possible. Like it's simply not how humans have been designed to exist. Right, hence the massive turn that we're seeing in our current cultural moment to the therapeutic, right? to psychologists and counselors, and yet the overwhelming epidemic of mental health challenges that people are experiencing, especially among young people. And I'm sure you've all heard the stats. It's telling us, friends, and it's especially clear to our young people, that you cannot live this way and thrive. This is not the pathway to a flourishing life. Now, I quoted New York Times columnist David Brooks last time, where he points out, next slide, the therapeutic self depends, by the way, I'm not critiquing psychologists or counselors in any way, and the, the important role that they play. I'm just saying there's been a massive swing away from traditional sources of meaning to the inner self, which has been found empty, and now people are scrambling to try to find help because they're not flourishing as human beings. And so if they can't turn to God or their parents or to some other religious or divine authority, where are they gonna turn? They're gonna turn to psychologists and counselors, of course. So please don't hear me critiquing the important role that, that psychologists, that psychiatrists, that therapists, that counselors play. That is not the point I'm making here. I just wanna make sure that's clear. And if you are seeing a counselor or a psychologist, I'm not critiquing you either. Okay, are we good? That's clear? All right. Um, so he says, the therapeutic self depends on others to validate their self-esteem. They cannot live without an admiring audience. Their apparent freedom from family ties and institutional constraints does not free them to stand alone or to glory in their individuality. On the contrary, it contributes to their insecurity. People can't build 
secure identities on their own. They weave their stable selves out of their commitments to and attachments with others. Their identities are forged as they fulfill their responsibilities as friends, family members, employees, neighbors, and citizens. The process is social and other-centric, not therapeutic, right? And this situation of needing near constant affirmation, which social media both provides or denies, often tragically, to desperate young people. And you may have seen in the news this week, next slide, that during a Senate inquiry on online safety in the US, Mark Zuckerberg was forced to face the families of teenagers who had taken their lives due to bullying on social media. And to his credit, he apologized in, in what I thought was quite a sincere way. These online spaces have become contexts, truly contexts of life and death. That's how powerful they now are in, the lives, uh, in our lives shaping people. Yet this drive for validation uh, has given rise to what's now being called expressive individualism. So we all need to express our individuality, right? We all need to express our identities into the world and to have our individuality seen and known, right? That is just fundamental to being human, right? We want to express ourselves and to be seen and to be known and to be loved. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, I guess you'd say, it's part of our image bearing of God to express our uniqueness. And we are all unique in various ways. God has gifted us with that. All right, and we should all be free to pursue our interests and our happiness and to hold our opinions and expect to be treated with courtesy and respect as we do the same for others. But it's meant to be give and take. Yes, you are free to be yourself, but I shouldn't have to like or even agree with you and especially not affirm everything that you want to express or believe in. That's how good kind of small L liberal democratic societies are supposed to function. However, next slide, expressive individualism is different. As our culture has fundamentally changed from a fairly stable uh, culture of mostly kind of shared values to a much more fluid and plastic one of constantly changing values, respectful courtesy and tolerance are now no longer good enough. What we're now expected to do is hold space for people to perform their identities, and we must be seen to affirm those identities, to be allies, Anything less than that is intolerant and bigoted because that's people's truth. That's their truth about themselves. It's become quasi-religious. So Yuval Levin describes it like this, it's on the screen. Expressive individualism is a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are, and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights, and it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. Who here grew up with parents who said that children should be seen and not heard? We do not live in that world anymore, just saying. So fully asserting who you are, and that's happening increasingly, as I'm sure you have all experienced, uh, not only in the public space, but also in workplaces, right? So they're no longer simply shared environments that we contribute to for the good of the company or the good of society or the good of the community, right? And mostly, but not entirely, kind of keep your private life to yourself. 
But now our workplaces and our cultural spaces, our public spaces have become performative spaces where our chosen identities must be allowed to be expressed and affirmed as a matter of equality and justice. So Carl Truman, Order of Strange New World, which I've got on my elders reading right now, he writes this, it should be clear that tolerance was never gonna be enough. This tracks back, of course, to the modern psychological and therapeutic construction of identity. If we are what we feel and what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs those feelings and desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self we believe we are. Witness the fierce debates that now rage over preferred pronouns or trans women in sport. It is argued that anything less than full acceptance and affirmation is experienced as a violent assault upon the person, causing psycholog psychological trauma as real in its own way as a blow from a fist. Now there's a TV show, um, a comedy set in Melbourne, filmed a couple of years back called, next slide, Why Are You Like This? Um, has anyone watched this, by the way? I kind of discovered this on ABC iview. It's very fascinating because it gives you a brilliant insight into, in a funny kind of way, but also fairly tragic at times, into what is actually going on in Melbourne, in our own culture. And one of the episodes, in fact, the first episode, um, explores this issue. A, a member of staff at a workplace gets reported to HR for not showing the correct level of enthusiasm for a pride event. So he's not perceived to be an ally, even though he's said nothing, and the event has nothing to do with the work he's employed to do, right? And as you can imagine, it gets messy very quickly. So here we are. As we know, in this secular context, the one main exception to our new culture of expression and inclusion and affirmation are, of course, Christian identities and Christian virtues. All right, and we see the controversies being stirred up again and again by debates over religious freedom and anti-discrimination laws and all of that stuff. Now, it's easy to bemoan this and play the victim card, right, church, but we have to acknowledge that we have enjoyed a lot of power, a lot of cultural power in Australia for a long time. And we've actually brought a lot of this on ourselves. Last week we talked about humility, so let's eat some humble pie. Why? Because we have not attended to Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 5. We have not carefully guarded the household of God, especially from leaders who are simply not godly people, who are not Christ-like in their behavior. So we've allowed bullies and pedophiles and narcissists and greedy swindlers of money to lead our churches. Is that not true? And as a result, we have lost a lot of credibility in our culture, have we not? So we need to own that, and we need to take our medicine, and we need to start to pray and ask the Lord, how can we change this? How can we can protect our churches from these kinds of things continuing to happen? But we also need to be careful in our desire to be winsome, that we don't water down the gospel to make it more acceptable. We must be careful that we are not seduced by every wind of doctrine, or every teaching that's going on around our culture, as many churches have done. And if you want to see an example of this, I thought about quoting this, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Google the Sparkle Creed, 
if you'd like to see an example of where some churches are at now in the West. Now, to narrow in on this question of identity, I wanna read a brilliant passage from Homo Deus, next slide, by Yuval Noah Harari, some of you will know him, uh, the Jewish humanist atheist author, because I think it expresses what we've been talking about here really beautifully, and he is probably one of the most widely read authors on this stuff right now, at a popular level. Um, especially when it comes to how we understand ourselves as human beings, that's what the whole book is about, our identities as humans, and how we make meaning, all right? So that's what we're gonna look at. Now, he, he writes, as a result of the rise of atheism, or what he calls humanist secularism, he says, we are not or no longer actors in a divine drama. I'm sorry, I have a lot of quotes this morning. Is that okay? We're, we'll be all right. Sorry. Um, I just want, I, I bring a lot of quotes so that you guys know that this isn't just me making stuff up, right? <laughs> uh, we're no longer actors in a divine drama and nobody cares about us and our deeds. So nobody, this is crucial, so nobody sets limits to our power. But we are still convinced, wrongly, he thinks, that our lives have meaning. And the antidote to meaninglessness and lawless existence is provided by humanism, argues Harari. A revolutionary new creed, again, important religious language here, a revolutionary new creed that conquered the world during the last few centuries. Now that's a massively overstated claim, by the way. Every, every sociologist, every historian knows the world is becoming more religious, not less. And there are more Christians alive today than at any other point in human history. So just saying, I don't think he's correct on this point, I think he's overstating it. Nevertheless, in the West, he's correct. Religion, faith has been disappearing, secular humanism is on the rise, no question about that. The humanist religion worships humanity and expects humanity to play the part that God once played. Whereas traditionally the great cosmic plan gave meaning to life, uh, the life of humans, instead humans must now draw from within their inner experiences not only the meaning of their own lives, but also the meaning of the entire universe. This is the primary commandment humanism has given us, create meaning for a meaningless world. Now, we are, he says, the ultimate source of meaning, and our free will, therefore, is the highest authority of all. Although he even then goes on to say that free will is an illusion, it's just the effect of our neurons firing, it's, not, it's just all biologically determined. You don't actually have free will, but you think you do. Okay, so, there we are. A little light topic for this morning. Um, so what's he say? He says, the free will is therefore the highest authority of all, except it kind of isn't. Instead of waiting for some external entity to tell us what's what, we can rely on our own feelings and desires. From infancy, we are bombarded with a barrage of humanist slogans counseling us. Listen to yourself, be true to yourself, trust yourself, follow your heart, do what feels good. You do you, live your truth. Now he goes on to give this example um, and about how we make meaning in a secular world and remember, friends, he is probably one of the most influential voices on this in our culture right now. Um, so he says, consider this moral dilemma, okay? Consider this moral dilemma. When a modern person wants to understand the meaning of an affair she's having, she's now unlikely to blindly accept the judgments of a priest or some ancient book. Instead, she'll carefully examine her feelings. If her feelings aren't clear, she might call a good friend and they'll go out for a drink and sit down, she'll pour out her heart and they'll talk it out. If things are still vague, 
she'll go to a therapist and tell them about it. Now, theoretically, the modern therapist, Harari says, occupies the same kind of place as a medieval priest. But in practice, a huge chasm separates them. The therapist does not possess a holy book that defines good and evil. So when the woman finishes her story, no matter what they may have done or said, the therapist is most likely, they're not gonna cast judgment, but they're most likely to ask in a caring voice, well, how do you feel about what has happened? Next slide. True, Harari writes, the therapist's bookshelf sags under the weight of Freud and Jung's writings and the 1,000 pages long Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But these are not holy scriptures. Most psychologists believe that only human feelings are authorized to determine the true meaning of human actions. Therefore, the therapist should help the woman examine the most secret chambers of her heart. There and only there will she find the answers. Whereas medieval priests, he seemed to love kind of bragging on medieval priests for some reason, I'm not sure why, but anyway. Whereas medieval priests had a hotline to God and could distinguish for us between good and evil, Modern therapists merely help us to get in touch with our own inner feelings, right? So this is essentially the meaning of the therapeutic self that David Brooks was talking about, we quoted earlier. It's pretty clear, okay, what he's saying. Feelings are now the only source of meaning for our own individual lives and also the only source for how we determine what is right and wrong in the universe. Does that bother you at all? Does that leave you feeling a little bit cold, a little bit concerned? That's a lot of weight that our feelings have to carry. <laughs> Not only do we need to make our own meaning, but we've got to figure out via our feelings the meaning of the whole universe, life, the universe, and everything. Of course, we all know it's the number 42. Um, Question is, what is the question? I have to ask that if the hypothetical woman in Harari's narrative is so liberated and simply being true to her own feelings, um, which she already assumes to be authoritative, then why is she so torn up about what she's doing? Like, why is she, in su why is she in such a crisis that she needs to talk to her friend or go see a therapist? Why should she be worried what other people might feel about her actions? Isn't she just living her truth? In other words, why would she be feeling guilty about it if she's just following her heart? Where do these feelings of guilt come from? Now, I actually don't know many people who followed Harari's advice, who've just followed their feelings, and who haven't ended up in a world of emotional hurt and regret. Like, do you? You think of anyone who's just lived their truth, regardless of whatever, what anyone else might think about it, follow their heart, follow their feelings, who hasn't ended up in a world of pain. So this approach sounds good from a distance, but friends, I think it's selling you a lie. Related to this, you may have heard about uh, something that blew up on Twitter, sorry, X this week. Next slide, Elmo, yes, the lovable Sesame Street character, posted on X this week and asked everyone, Elmo, just checking in, how's everybody doing? Innocent question. No, don't go to that slide just yet. Um, <laughs> right? After some 150 million responses, the New York Post wrote 
a story about what happened. Here's the headline. Elmo asked ex-users, how's everybody doing? And the trauma dump was so depressing that even President Biden got involved. <laughs> so the subtitle read, Elmo's wellness check sparks mental health spiral on social media. Oh, it's amazing. So the article read, little did Elmo know he was about to be inundated with tweets indicating that everyone seemed to be at their breaking point. Here's one of the responses. Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows as a unique horror. One that was previously unfathomable in nature, our inevitable doom which once accelerated in years or months now accelerates in hours or even minutes. All right? Finally, President Joe Biden responded with this. I know how hard it is some days to sweep the clouds away and get to summer days. This is from a president, right? <laughs> I have a feeling he might have actually written this. Our friend Elmo is right. <laughs> we have to be there for each other, offer to help our neighbor in need, and above all else, ask for help when we need it. Thank you, President Biden. So Elmo eventually responded, next slide, with um, kind of, well, gee, I'm really glad I asked. <laughs> Clearly you're not all doing well, and said that, they, he wanted to make sure everyone was assured that they were loved. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, right? This is funny. Um, but when we're so desperate for help that we're willing to pour our hearts out to a puppet that tells me this age of the therapeutic self just really isn't working for us. You know, what we really need right now are these guys. Next slide. These are the guys we need. I'm showing my age here, but if you know, you know, right? <laughs> Statler and Waldorf, they're the heroes we need. Coming back to Harari, okay. He asks, so what? If people want to have affairs, why shouldn't they? There's no God to whom we're accountable that tells us what's right and wrong. We decide that. We decide what is true. And what if we hurt people along the way? What if others are caused pain by our choices? He asks, what happens when the same action causes one person to feel good and another to feel bad? Do the good feelings of the two lovers outweigh the bad feelings of their spouses and children? In the end, he says, with our choices, we really should, we really should try to limit any hurt we cause. He says, humanism has taught us, humanism has taught us Humanism has taught us that something can be bad only if it causes somebody to feel bad. Murder is wrong not because some god once said, thou shalt not kill. Rather, murder is wrong because it causes terrible suffering to the victim, to his family members, and to his friends and acquaintances. Theft is wrong not because some ancient text says, thou shalt not kill, or that, sorry, thou shalt not steal. Rather, theft is wrong because when you lose your property, you feel bad about it. And if an action does not cause anyone to feel bad, there can be nothing wrong with it. Okay, so first of all, he's right. If there's no God, our moral choices are essentially meaningless. But in that case, what sense would a phrase like, humanism has taught us that something is bad only if it feels bad or makes someone else feel bad? I mean, who invested humanism with the authority to make that declaration? The point is, his argument 
that something is wrong only if it hurts somebody else's feelings is itself an article of faith. It's a kind of religious doctrine. You can't point to any authority that says that's the truth. He's just making it up. He's not honest about it, but that's what he's doing. He's just making it up. Right? I mean, why is that the basis of ethics? I could simply say that, well, I feel in my own heart that what I want to do is more important than the way others may feel about it. So what right does Harari have to tell me that I'm wrong? If I feel that my feelings are more important than your feelings, on that basis, I can justify anything that I want to do. Right? I just don't have, well, all I have to say is that I don't care about your feelings. In fact, your feelings are irrelevant to me. I'm going to follow my own feelings, and they are authoritative. Thank you very much. And if it hurts you, too bad. And so we go back to Nietzsche's inescapable problem that in the end, the people who will, who will decide in our culture what is right and wrong will be the people with the most power. So let's be real about this. In the end, it comes down to who has the biggest gun. Nietzsche called it the will to power. That in the end, in a, a meaningless, godless universe, is the only truth that will survive, that will win. So the point I'm making is it looks like Harari is saying something helpful here about how our cultures should make meaning, but it's actually useless as an ethical framework. And all it does is lead to tyranny because it, is, it doesn't have the capacity to hold our culture together when we're all just trying to live our own truth, like how does that actually hold difference together and enable us to live together well with a shared set of values? It can't do it. And that is another reason why we're seeing a growing need in our culture to enforce affirmation rather than tolerance, right, as the primary value of cultural unity. You need to enforce affirmation because otherwise things don't hold together. The theologian John Stackhouse put it like this, Next slide, affirmation is a paternalistic way of enforcing a kind of false unity on a culture where it is not actually present. In a world without God, it is a way of trying to hold us all together, all celebrating the same values. But in reality, it is the selective application of the virtues of justice, equality, inclusion, diversity, and freedom to certain kinds of people and not to others. The elites and much of the general population have shown, in fact, that real difference, let alone dissent, is not welcome. And in this culture of affirmation, the banners of justice and freedom and inclusion and diversity under which it marches are in truth a hegemony much narrower and much worse than our former culture of tolerance. And I said last time, there's a lot in our culture that I would be prepared to tolerate that if you put a gun to my head, I could not affirm. There's a big difference between affirmation, which is me saying that's a good thing, versus what I'm prepared to tolerate. Do you understand what I mean? There's a huge difference there. And it looks like affirmation is the nicer way to go. It's actually the far more narrower and unjust way to go. Tolerance is actually a much broader and more diverse value. We'll explore some of that more in more detail next week. But here's where I want to finish, friends. I want to finish with the gospel. What did Jesus tell us? If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. So friends, I would suggest to you that the greatest possible source, in fact, I believe the only possible source of a stable and flourishing self-identity 
can be found by abiding in Christ and submitting to his will. Because he is your creator. He knows you better than you do, and he can help restore in you what is broken and give you back your true identity. That is one of the core promises of the gospel, that in Christ, as we give up ourselves, we actually find our true selves. We let go of the false self, and we receive the true self that is in Christ. Our true selves are received as a gift from our creator, not something that you must bear the responsibility to build on your own terms. And I think that sense of self most fully comes alive in us when we learn to love and serve other people. Think of the two greatest commandments, like the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is that describing? Everything about you, your whole identity, your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, give it all to God in love. And love your neighbor as yourself. Another way to put this is, if you give yourself away in love to God and to others, you will also find out how to truly love yourself. Not by looking inward, by looking outward, by looking to your Father in heaven and by looking to others in love. You will learn how to bring all your heart, soul, mind and strength, everything that makes you you into this and it will be transformed. You'll be brought into the amazing life and love that is the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And when we look to the cross, we see there the symbol the very center of human history that points to a God who is prepared to do this for us, to show us what it looks like, to lay down his life for us, to look away from himself toward us and to give everything of himself to us. And in so doing, in, in so doing we can then receive all that he is, all that he has for us and truly be set free to become ourselves. This is the gift of God that isn't deserved, it cannot be earned, we only receive it by humility and faith. It is truly the most amazing thing, friends. It is truly the most amazing thing in the whole world. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. I finish with this. Next slide. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, gave ourselves back to us, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from yourself. Saved from having to try to make this work on your own. Saved to become a child of God. Saved to be the person that you were always created to be. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, like he's restored to us our dignity and our honor in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast for we are God's handiwork. You know the Greek there, it can also be translated masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to live a fulfilling life, to live a life of purpose, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. I invite you to stand with me right now. We are gonna pray.
As we conclude this morning, I thank you, Heavenly Father, for this incredible promise in Ephesians 2, that we don't have to work this out on our own. We don't have to try and create ourselves. We receive all that you are and all that we are from you as a gift as we humble ourselves before you and ask of you in faith. And it is your delight to show us the incomparable riches of your grace in your kindness expressed to us in Christ Jesus. So I pray for anyone here this morning who has been challenged or troubled or concerned by what we've discussed this morning or has maybe come to realize that they're not really sure if they're actually a Christian. Maybe they know they're not a believer and today they would love to begin to follow you, Lord Jesus. So I pray in the name of Jesus, for anyone who is longing to encounter you, to know what it means to follow you, to become a child of God, to be set free from our sins and transgressions and mistakes and failures and our regret and our hurt and our pain. May you come Holy Spirit and bring that new birth about in our hearts by faith. Jesus, we put our trust in you. And we ask this morning for those of us who are dealing with the challenges of living in a culture that has so rapidly changed and they're so confused and they don't know how to walk the fine line of faithfulness and yet be tolerant and kind and welcoming and loving to people around them. Lord, as Jody prayed for our children, may we and our teachers, may we all, wherever we are, be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. May we have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit with the gentleness of the love of God. Come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Friends, just take a moment to engage with the Lord. Ask Him to come and begin to speak into your heart and soul and mind and body what it means for you to be a child of God. I pray that He'd begin to reconstruct our broken identities, that He'd help us to move away from maybe things that have been said and done to us that have caused us great pain, that have caused us trauma, that have broken things in us that we don't know how to fix. Maybe we feel that every day we're walking around with like a knife in our chest or a broken heart or confusion or despair. Lord, I pray that You come and deliver us from these things and fill us with the joy of the Lord, which is not just circumstantial happiness, but that deep abiding river of peace that this world cannot take away from us, no matter what we experience. And Lord, I pray that You begin to speak those positive words into our hearts about who we truly are as children of God, as followers of Jesus, as new creations in Christ that we are holy and dearly loved, that we have been set free from every sin, that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That these words would mean more to us than anything else this world can provide or anything else this world can say. And I pray that the blood of Christ, which cries out day and night, that we are delivered, that it is finished, that we would trust that, 
that we'd know that the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus speaks a better word in this world than any other word, especially the words of the evil one, the deceiver, the liar, who only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I pray we would have discernment together in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to know when He is speaking and to silence His voice by trusting in the words of God, by being filled with the Holy Spirit and standing our ground equipped with the armour of God. So today, Lord, we put on the armour of God. Salvation, truth, righteousness, peace, the sword of the Spirit. The shield of faith. And Lord, help us to stand our ground. Men and women with backbone, men and women with strength in our souls, because we know to whom we belong. We know who speaks the word of truth over us. We know who fashions our real identity. And we will not be afraid because we know His kingdom has come, His kingdom is coming, and His kingdom will have no end. He has defeated the principalities and powers. He has triumphed over them by the cross, exposing them to public ridicule. Even though it looks like defeat, Jesus' death on the cross, it is just the precursor to resurrection power. And that is ours in the power of the Holy Spirit. So come Holy Spirit and baptise us afresh, we pray, and make us women, men, men and women of integrity, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. In Jesus' Name, in Jesus' Name. Amen, amen.